If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Proverbs chapter 17. Last week, uh, we uh, took some time, and uh, uh, as we do from time to time coming through Proverbs, there'll be some uh, really uh, p- some passages that are just invaluable in helping us put everything in a concept that we can understand it. And we saw an incredible passage on, on the wicked man. We know as the Antichrist, any wicked man in general, but uh, as in Proverbs, the Antichrist, and how he uses and has used down through history bribery to uh, get everything he wants to stay in power and to control uh, to get control of, of the whole world. Inspirationally, uh, we talked about that being the world system. And we saw it, talked about it in politics, certainly in business, and, and unfortunately we talked about in the religion of the world and people, what they do uh, in churches and Christianity. Doctrinally, as I've already stated, we know that it is the Antichrist and how he has positioned himself down through history. And we talked about uh, the seven garment changes that really all history can be built around. And then Thursday night, uh, Josh Gibbs uh, had called in a question. Of course, you know, they can't be here because of their kids, uh, the two twins that are still uh, cannot come out of the house yet. So they're pretty much locked down and Skyping in or coming through the YouTube. He asked a question about the eight manifestations of Christ. And I showed you how that not only down through history did the devil manifest himself seven ways to do what he did, but Christ manifested himself eight ways. And we went through that, and I showed you how that, how that all works. And, uh, and of course, uh, the key to getting all of this has been the, really the theme of the book of Proverbs, and I've been hitting it hard and will continue to hitting it, hitting it hard, simply um, getting to the place in your life where you get God's understanding and God's wisdom. And really, uh, this is my ministry for you, to you. This is what I want to accomplish in every one of your lives. Obviously, I'm not going to do it in every one of your lives. It won't, be, it won't happen, but it would be my goal in a perfect world, is to get everyone to the place where you utilize in your life, every day of your life, in every circumstance and situation that you find yourself in, being able to use God's wisdom and understanding to be able to figure things out. Simply the ability to see what is really happening around you so you don't get deceived. Most of us live in a world that does not exist. And we do that because we're outside the framework of the Bible. We think that situations are okay when they're not. Many people think that the coming election is going to make the country a better place, and it's not, no matter who wins. We get the idea that, that things aren't as bad as they seem, and the truth of the matter is they're worse than they seem. And it comes down to you having the ability of being able to see something, understand something, have the wisdom of God to see what is really going on. You know, there's two books in the Bible that I I really rely on a lot. I hesitate to say, I almost said it, that they're my two favorite books in the Bible because that changes on a daily basis. But they are certainly two books that I rely on a lot. One of them is the book of Judges. The book of Judges is one of the most insightful books that you've ever found in your life. And the book of Judges mirrors where we're living today. The book of Judges is a period of time when some of the goofiest stuff you ever saw in all of the Bible happens. It's a thing where it just seems that everything that's going on is completely contrary to what God intended it to be. And it's an incredible book. And you see the God's people just getting into one mess after the other. And it's just an absolute debacle of what transpires 
uh, with the nation of Israel during this time. And as you read through that, you begin to see that that book mirrors the time that you and I are living in. The book of Judges is a great book in a practical way to show you and me the Laodicean church age that we're living in. The whole book of Judges can be understood and, and grasped in one verse at the end of the book where it simply says that the problem with Israel and the problem with the book of Judges is that there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. The problem in Christianity today is we have no final authority. There's no king. Every church, every Christian, everybody out there doing their own thing. In the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of Christianity. And God's people, because they don't have any wisdom, and they don't have any understanding, they get caught up in it. I deal with people all the time that are fed up with churches. I deal with people all the time that are fed up with pastors. I deal with people all the time that are fed up with Christianity. I understand that. But do you know why you're fed up with them? you know why you're mad? you know why you're angry? Because you got deceived. You know why you got deceived? Because you never got the wisdom and the understanding of God to be able to see what's real and what isn't. You can't blame what's wrong with the world when it affects you if you didn't do what you needed to do to find out what is real and what isn't. That's your responsibility as a child of God. Your responsibility is to get the wisdom of God, the understanding of God, that in any scenario you're faced with in life, anything you see, you understand it from God's standpoint. The other book in the Bible that's a favorite of mine is the book of Esther. The book of Esther is the only book in the Bible where God is not mentioned. There's no reference to the Lord. There's no reference to God. There's no reference to the Trinity. There's no reference to God doing anything. And it stands as a book in the Bible, again, one of the weirdest books that you've ever seen. And it's a book where seemingly God is doing nothing because he's not mentioned anywhere in the book. But in reality, when you study the book and you see it, God is behind the scenes orchestrating every event, doing everything, getting ready uh, to get those Jews back to that land where he wanted them to be. You find in the book of Esther, type of the Antichrist, a guy by the name of Haman. Haman's goal is to wipe out the Jews. You find in the book of Esther, a wedding in a king's garden, seven days and seven nights. You find all of the things that shows you and I that the book of Judges is a picture of the Laodicean church period where they have no authority and everybody's just making it up as they go along. Where the book of Esther shows you the Laodicean church age that in a Christianity where God looks like he's doing nothing and it's so screwy and messed up, God is behind the scenes orchestrating every event for that Jew to get back in the land, the Antichrist to show up, and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're incredible books. That's wisdom and understanding. That's the ability to take the Word of God let it do what it does in your life and then look at life around you and understand what, what's going on. I showed you the devil's plan last week. I showed you how in the Old Testament that he ran the world through nations. And in the New Testament, he ran the world through religion. He has a church with his own Bible. And I laid out the changing of his garments to switch from the Old Testament scenario to a New Testament one. And I told you, nobody even caught it the great historians of the world, the great theologians of the world, every one of them missed it. Every one of them. And of course, you'll never get it without the wisdom and understanding 
that can really uh, decipher it all for you. And I gave you a great verse in Job chapter 41, verse 13, when it talked about who can discover the face of his garment. You know, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 says, And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed into the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. And uh, we're totally oblivious today to the devil. I guarantee you, no matter what Bible college you go to, no matter what church you go to, wherever you want to hang your hat and you want to learn your Bible, you would be hard-pressed to find any classes, any teaching, any Bible studies that lay out for you the devil's work down through church history. It's like he died. It's like he went to Panama. It's like he went on vacation someplace. The most active person in the history of the world other than God for Christianity will be the devil himself against Christianity. And when we look at that thing, we just think like he's, he's non-existent. God's wisdom and understanding will give you an incredible insight into what really is going on. Not only in the past, that's history. Not only in the present, that's the things that's going on around you. But in the future, that's the things that are coming your way. This is why the Bible is laid out, and I talk about it all the time, that there's three applications to your Bible. There's a historical application. It happened in history. There's an inspirational application for you today, right now, as you're living. And then there's a doctrinal application. It deals with the things that are coming your way. Now, today, with that being said, we're going to finish up chapter 17, and we'll close out with some, I think, good practical material uh, for us to be able to use in ministry. And I want to close out chapter 17 by reading verses 25 through uh, 28. And here's what it says. A foolish man is a grief to his father and bitterness to her that bear him. Also to punish the just is not good, nor to strike princes for equity. He that hath knowledge spareth his words, and a man of understanding is of an excellent spirit. Even a fool, when he holdeth his peace, is counted wise. And he that shutteth his lips is esteemed a man of understanding. Bubba, would you stand up and God, ask God blessing on the offering? Uh, yeah, on the sermon this morning. <laughs> See, I talked about two offerings that's in my mind right now. Go ahead. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, this morning for giving us a place to come, Lord, and, and learn about your word, Lord. And I pray that you be with Bob as he gives us a message and be with us as we uh, and give us an open mind and open heart to accept the word. We love you in the first name. Now, verse 25 says, and this is where we want to start. It says, a foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her that bear him. You know, you'll find in the book of Proverbs, per se, a lot of verses dealing with a uh, wheeling with, uh, with a son that, that won't do what's right. In fact, if you wanted to start through the Bible, the list is endless. I mean, coming through the Word of God. I mean, you had uh, Jacob's sons. He had 12 boys. They, they had all kinds of problems. Samson probably was the best disgrace of a son you could ever want anywhere in the Word of God. You remember going back there talking about Eli and Samuel, and uh, his, his boys were a mess. Samuel's boys, who took over after Eli, his kids were a mess. David, who was a man after God's own heart, his kids were a mess. I mean, uh, Solomon here in his own son, Rehoboam, he's a mess. Now, when you get over there in the New Testament, you got a story about a prodigal son, and he's in a mess. And, uh, you know, every one of those, every one of those will illustrate for you and for me 
Israel's spiritual condition. They're all pictures. Every one of those guys are a type of the nation of Israel. But nothing will bring grief to a father and a mother in a greater way than a son or daughter uh, who grows up and becomes a fool. Now, as I already said, historically, this will be Rehoboam. Rehoboam is Solomon's son who takes over the throne after uh, Solomon uh, loses the throne. And uh, Rehoboam is a fool. He's a total disgrace to his father and his mother. Uh, He's a total opposite from his father Solomon in his wisdom. He makes every mistake a man could make being, and he's a terrible king. And he's a total embarrassment. He's a foolish king. Uh, in 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 1 to 22, when he comes to the throne, the first thing he does is split the kingdom. Right there, he set, he set the end for the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel goes on 300 more years after he did that. But it's a mess and finally goes into captivity because he divided what God wanted to stay unified. And uh, it's just just the way that it worked. And he's a terrible guy. You know, I've seen it in ministry. Rehoboam had a father who was the wisest man that ever lived. And I wonder many times how he turned out to be such a fool with a father that knew all that he knew. But yet I've seen the same thing uh, in families. I've seen dads that, that, uh, and moms that were really wise in a lot of things, and they never got into the things of the world, but their kids do. I've seen it in ministry all of my life. I've seen guys that were under a, a pastor who really knew what he was doing. Uh, I, I know several guys that have, have turned out uh, people that, that uh, started churches that th- those guys really knew what they were doing. They really knew how to train somebody. They really knew how to give the material that a young man needs to have. And yet I've watched guys go out in the ministry and I, when they've been trained right and they've gotten the truth of what it all is, and I've seen those guys make every mistake a guy could make. And just a total disaster. I mean, it's true in everything you see. And inspirationally, this will be any child today who plays the fool and becomes an embarrassment to his mom and dad. And uh, I've seen the heavy load that a wayward child brings on parents. Oh, I've dealt with it all my life. And yet I've seen saved moms and dads find themselves in that very situation and yet not be able to follow the principles uh, to have any chance to ever fix it before it gets too late where you, where you can't fix it. Hey, I've had parents sit in my office, weep and cry over a wayward daughter or a wayward son, whatever. And, uh, you know, they knew that they were responsible for it. They knew that they didn't do what was right to put the right things in their lives. And now here they are. They want to, they're, they're going to church. The kids don't. Uh, they want to get involved. Kids don't. And they sit there. And I've seen this. I, they, I've seen it so many times. They sit there. They pray to God. They want God to change it. And then you know what happens? God begins to change it. God begins to do something in those girls' lives or those boys' lives or that child's life. Begins to bring them back and get them involved. You know what? Mom and dad just throw it all away. Go right back to the whole things they were doing. And you know what? You don't get a second chance with kids like that. You had to thank God that he gave you the chance to get them back. You blow that chance, you don't get a second chance. But I've seen it. I've seen it. You know, parents sometimes, honestly, parents sometimes can be the most selfish people on this planet. They will want what they want at the expense of their own kid. And I know parents make sacrifices. Many of them make sacrifices in the wrong places. And it's an incredible thing to see. 
Now, doctrinally, doctrinally, all this is Israel as God's son. You remember back in Exodus chapter 4, the Bible says that Israel is Israel my son. Israel is a corporate nation, is likened to God's son. And uh, this is a picture of Israel in its spiritual condition that is bringing grief to their father, the Lord God, and then to bitterness to his mother, which is Jerusalem. And uh, you see it all the time. There's a number of ways in your Bible to study the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel, you can study her as God's wife. You can study it as God's son. You can study it as a virgins, plural. It's like the church. number of ways you can study the church. You can study the church as Christ's bride. You can study the church as God's son. You can study the church as a virgin. Lots of different ways to study it. And what happens when you put it all together, you get a complete composite and picture of what God uh, is dealing with. And she's about to, uh, she's about the mother, Jerusalem, is about to pay the price for her son's foolishness. Because around 606 B.C. and 587, brother, bitterness is the good word. Because when Babylon comes down and Assyria comes down, she goes through some grief at the expense of her son, the nation of Israel. It's incredible. And uh, these are so true. These verses are so true uh, in all three uh, applications. Now look at verse 26. Also to punish the just is not good, nor to strike princes for equity. Now there's two good things here. I think they're great things. Good solid principles in helping people. And it says here, first of all, also to punish the just is not good. You don't hurt people who are trying to do good. You never hurt people who are trying to do right. Now, I, I say that fully knowing that when you start to work with people, you're going to find some people who don't want to do right. I get it. And they will waste your time. And they will always be so self-centered and selfish about themselves, they'll never get past themselves. I get that. I understand that. But I want to tell you something. You're going to find out in dealing with people that you're going to find some people who want to do what's right. You're going to find some people who want to change some things about them, and uh, they want to do what they need to do. And it's those kind of people that uh, you want to try to help. And you never hurt people who are trying to do good. The Bible says over in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, it talks about that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And most of people don't understand that verse. They, they, get, they get thinking, well, that means you've got to work for salvation. You've got to work to keep your salvation. Uh, he's, not, he's not saying that at all. He's giving that to the Philippian church. They were already saved. What he's saying is this. When you get saved and you begin to build a relationship with God, there's some things you've got to work out between you and him. There's some things you've got to come to grips with. There's some things you've got to come to terms with. There was a man in that Bible when he got God's salvation that that didn't start the process of him working through those things to get where God wanted him to be. And when you get saved and you turn your life over to God, hey, there's some things you've got to work out in your salvation. You now become a new creature in Christ Jesus. You now become to, uh, faced with a lot of things that you've got to let go, things that's got to change. You've got to work through that. Nobody just got saved on a Monday and walked out Tuesday and had all their problems solved. There's things you've got to go through. It takes time to work through some of those things. Some of you will struggle with things, uh, uh, you know, for, for all of your life maybe. And no two people are the same uh, when it comes to the personal levels. You, you don't deal with them the same way. One person may have no problem with anything and just move on and grow. The other person may struggle with things. No two people are alike. 
But when you begin to see in somebody's life that they want to do what's right and they're committed to it, and I'll tell you right now, you get a little farther down the line in this thing of working with people, you'll be able to tell pretty quickly because there's some things that you look for in a person's life that will tell you if they really want to do what's right or they're just kind of halfway into it. There's some things that you look for. And when you find those things and you realize that here's a person who may be struggling with this, maybe doing this or not doing everything that they need to do, but you look past that and you look down inside them and you see the character qualities that they really want to be what God wants them to be, you never hurt people like that. You always try to help them. Sometimes we're so quick to judge somebody who we think should be farther along or getting a handle on something. And I understand, I get it. There will be people for time and eternity in the ministry who just want to play games and waste your time. I understand that. But sometimes because of where people have come from, sometimes because of the bad experiences they've had in their life, before salvation, they carry sometimes over into their life and have to be dealt with. I mean, sometimes, uh, you know, you, you just have to understand that. And I, and I know the verse in, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. I, I laid the foundation out and taught it to you, and it's the foundation for what we do in our discipleship too. If any man be in Christ, is a new creature. Old things are passed away, all things become new. I understand that. But if I've learned anything in 40 plus years of the ministry, it's one thing. You have to be patient with people. You have to be patient with people who are trying to do what's right even when they fail. People will have their struggles. I have mine and you and certainly have yours. People will develop patterns over the years in their lives. Those patterns become a way of life. Things they have to struggle with. And you don't fix them overnight. The greatest cure, I'm going to tell you something. The greatest cure for what ails most people when they're struggling. The greatest cure on the same par with all the great Bible verses that you could ever throw at them. The greatest cure for somebody who is beat up, somebody who is busted, somebody who has been disillusioned with all the things of Christianity, the best thing you can show them is a real church with real people in it. The best thing, best medicine for them. Let them know that there is a place where they can go, that they can get what they need, that nobody's going to judge them. Nobody's going to hurt them. Nobody's going to bring into their life things that they have to, uh, that they have to deal with that, uh, that, that is a, a something that they're struggling with. And I'll tell you this, and this is a true statement. I don't know what your sin was before you got saved. It was your problem. I don't know what it was. I don't know what your sin was before you got saved, but I want to tell you something. After you get saved, the biggest sin you had before you got saved will be the same biggest problem you got after you get saved. In most cases. In most cases. It's just now you have a way to deal with it now, you see. It's not that God takes your problems away. We get that idea. We get that from preachers. Well, get saved and all your problems will be over. You get saved, I'm going to tell you something. All your problems are just going to start. Well, you get saved and you can be delivered from this or this or this or this. Let me tell you something. Getting saved will not deliver you from anything. Getting saved simply gives you now the ability to get into a book that will transform you into what God wants to be. And you'll come to the place in your life where you say, 
I don't need this anymore. You know, I could fix every problem everybody's got if you just listen to me. I could solve every problem you got in 10 seconds or less if you would just listen to me when I tell you whatever's going on in your world right now, listen to me. You don't need it anymore. But it won't work that way, will it? You got to come to the conclusion that you don't need it anymore. The fact that I know you don't need it anymore, you got to come to the place where you don't need it anymore. And that takes time. That doesn't happen overnight. I grant you, sometimes it never happens at all. I understand that. I'm talking about people who have those things that you look for, who, but I want to tell you, I would be less than dishonest with you if I didn't tell you this. There are people in this world who play the game so long get into a fantasy world that doesn't exist and stay out of the reality of the Word of God and just get everything all messed up, they didn't ever get back. Just the, just the way it is. Just the way it is. And you know, becoming a new creature in Christ Jesus will instantly change your soul and your salvation, but it doesn't instantly change your flesh. You have to work out your salvation. It's just now that you have the ability to do it where before you don't have the ability to do it. He isn't going to come down and take your problems away. No, no, he's going to give you a book that will give you everything you do. But you have to work out your own salvation. And let me add the last part of that verse with fear and trembling. My job, the job of this church is to help you, to help you do that. Keep you accountable? Absolutely. Hold you responsible? You bet I will. Not let you have a victim status mentality and mindset? Absolutely not. Allow you to blame your problems and issues on somebody else? Never happen. You have to take responsibility for those things yourself and work through them, but help you, bring you along. And the key word is patience. One of the seven things that we should add to our faith over there in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, after you do get saved. Now look at the second part of that verse, the last part. Nor to strike princes for equity. Now this is a good verse. You probably never really think about this the way it really lays itself out, but that's what I'm here for. Now the word equity <coughs> is the word balance. We know that from other places we've been in Proverbs. The strike here is like to hit somebody. Punch them out. Bible says in Second First Timothy chapter three verse three that a pastor can't be a striker. Doesn't say anything about shooting them, but you can't be a striker. <laughs> what he's saying is this: first part of the verse. Be patient with people who are trying to do right. Don't hurt them. Second part of the verse: if you have a person in your life, maybe a pastor, maybe a teacher, <clears throat> maybe someone who mentors you. Maybe it's a boss at work or just people in your life who are well-balanced and they're dealing with people and fair and honest in their approach to issues. Don't complain and clobber them just because you don't like what they say. Let me tell you something. Finding somebody in your life that is fair and balanced with you, who won't judge you, who will love you unconditionally, <clears throat> who, will, who will take you the way you are, help you work through the problems you have and stand by you through whatever you go through, that's invaluable. That's invaluable. Instead of clobbering somebody or striking somebody like that, 
You ought to get on your knees and thank God for a person like that. You've got something special in your life. Something, somebody that is, when dealing with you, is fair and balanced. Most people, most pastors, most Christians, they look at others and only see what their faults are, what they don't like about them. And they'll judge that whole person who they are based on that precept of concept of what they see in them. But wisdom and understanding is now the ability to look past that and see them as God sees them. And then through God's understanding, realize that they're good people trying to do good. And then you try to help them every way that you can, any way that you can. So finding someone with a good balance in dealing with people who will operate on principles instead of what others say is like finding a T-Rex in Central Park in New York. It's impossible. It's such a rare thing because nobody's operating on the principles today. Nobody operates. Everybody's operating on their emotions or what, how they view things. A well-balanced person who deals with people will keep his personal ideas and ide- ideologies and feelings out of it. He'll follow the principles of a book. They won't jump to conclusions or make a problem where there is no problem. They won't label somebody just because of what they say or what they do or what they look like. He'll have patience, and through that patience, they'll prove all things. They'll look to learn what you see in people that you know that this person is worth the investment. I've told some of you who have come over and talked to me. We went through some things in the Bible together. You probably didn't maybe thought I was just saying this because I say it to every, you think I say it to everybody, and I don't. Sometimes I've said it to people. Most of the time I've thought it to myself. <clears throat> I'll sit down with somebody, some young guy, some gal, some couple, and I'll, I'll sit down with them and we'll go through and they'll lay out where they're at and they'll talk about where they're going and what they've done, where they've been, and how about the Bible and the things that they're learning and things that they're getting. And I will say sometimes to that person, you know what? You let me know what you need because you are worth any investment that I have to put in you. You know why I say that? And I don't say that to everybody. You say, well, you didn't say it to me. Well, maybe I thought it. I think it a lot of times. I don't say it very often. So don't go out of here despondent if I didn't say it to you. I probably was thinking it. No, I, not, some of you I would not. But anyway, <laughs> just kidding. You see things in people. You learn what the basic fundamental things has to be in somebody's life for them to make it. And I don't care what your problems are. I don't care what you're dealing with. I don't care how black your sunrise was this morning or how dark your sunset is. I I look beyond that. And you got to be able to see inside that person, here's something you can work with. Here's something that gives you a ray of hope that you can focus on this. There's areas in a person's life that you have to look at. And when you see those things, you grow it. You cultivate it. There's been times that people have walked out of my office or times that people have, after going through the Bible together, and I've said to myself, you know what? Or the Lord has said to me, whatever it takes, you give that person whatever they need because they're going to be profitable for me in the ministry. And that's just what you do. It's one of those incredible things of understanding that people are people. And... Uh, you know, you just realize that uh, a well-balanced person who deal with people through patience, he'll prove all things, but he'll look for the key areas of what uh, a person is really all about. 
And he'll learn to see those things because he's got wisdom and understanding and he knows how to use it when he finds somebody. Look at verse 27. He that hath knowledge spares his words and a man of understanding is of an excellent spirit. Now this is a great principle. He that hath knowledge spareth his words. In dealing with people, I want to give you a little bit of advice if you want to be successful at working with people. Bible says that we perfect ourselves daily. I get all that. But let me tell you one thing. If you're going to really be good at working with people, one thing you need to really perfect. <coughs> it's the art of listening. Listening to what somebody says. So many times we have our preconceived ideas about the situation of the person that we don't hear what they're really saying. And I tell people all the time when I deal with them, I say, you know what? I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. I care nothing about that. All I care is where you're at right now. But here's the deal. I'm willing to help you and do whatever I got to do to get you where you say you want to be. But here's the fundamental bottom line. Don't lie to me. I don't care how bad it is. I don't care how bad you think it is. If I'm going to help you and you don't tell me the truth, then you send me down a road that's going to waste my time and your time and isn't going to fix the thing. You've got to come to the place in your life as a Christian and as a person in dealing with people that you learn to listen what they say. You understand that what they say is a process by which you are able to help them. Dealing with people, we need to perfect the art of listening to what they say. I will listen very intently. When somebody comes into my office and they're sitting down and telling me something, I won't say a word. I will not say a word. I will listen absolutely intently and hang on to every word that they say. Because I know that in what they're saying to me lies the answer, lies the circumstances, and lies what I need to know if I'm going to be able to help them. You've got to listen to what they say. It isn't about just letting somebody spew it out and get it out and not paying attention and then you give them what you think they want. You got to listen to everything that they say. And I'll tell you why that is. In the Bible, there's a process of how people say what they say. And if you understand this process, then it puts a whole new dimension on listening to somebody. And it's as simple as that. You know, first of all, the Bible says, now you want wisdom and understanding, here it is. The art of listening. First off, Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, tells you and me that we are to love the Lord thy God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, and all of our soul. When a person does that to the best of their ability, then the second part of the formula kicks in, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Once you do that, then you keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. You realize that you've got to keep your relationship with God that you love Him with all your heart, mind, and soul, because out of your heart, you'll have to face all the issues of life. Every issue that you struggle with this morning is in your heart. The third Stage is Proverbs 23, 7. Based on what I just gave you, the Bible says, He that thinketh in his heart, so is he. You are this morning what you think about. 
When you love the Lord, the God with all your heart, mind, and soul, that's who you are. Whatever you love this morning, deep down in your heart, number one over God, that's who you are. That's what you are. Because as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Then the fourth concept is found in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. It simply says it tra- what we think in our heart, what we have in our heart, will translate into what we say. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth now speaks. See how easy that is? See why you've got to listen to what somebody says? Would you have a real heart-to-heart conversation? Because if you're listening, what is really going on is going to come out. You just have to be in a place to understand and perfect the art of listening based up against the principles so you know where you're at. Somebody sits down and starts talking to me and laying things out. I listen very intently, and in my mind, I'm bouncing up the principles of the Word of God but based on what they're saying, that at some point in this, I'm going to be able to help them by bringing what they're in their heart to the Word of God and make a match together and give them what they need. But you have to listen. You have to listen. You can't be talking all the time. I can sit down with a charismatic and I can sit down with a church of Christ. In 30 seconds, I can know exactly what he's all about. You know, we were talking in, we were talking in the uh, uh, singles ministry yesterday. We were talking about some things and we were talking about the day that uh, the devil came and, and, uh, and deceived Eve, you know, and put the world into sin. And I was telling them, you know, when, when the devil showed up, we get the idea that he showed up you know, looking like we all think he looks like, you know, in a red suit with a big tail with a pitchfork and horns and, you know, all that stuff. That's not how he showed up. In fact, I've said it many, many times. If you would have been in the garden that day and you just saw the Lord Jesus Christ walking in the cool of the garden, coming toward Adam and Eve, and you just saw the devil himself walking down the road the other way coming toward him, you couldn't tell him apart. I already gave you the verse that he transforms himself into an angel of light. There's only one angel of light. And when the devil showed up with Eve, he looked just like Jesus Christ. You say, well, how in the world, how in the world can you blame her if, if, he, if he counterfeited and looked like him? The same way you blame people today and Christians because the devil counterfeits himself today. You know how Eve should have known that he was not the real deal? By what he said. She spent Bible studies with God. She knew everything that God said. He didn't say one thing that didn't change what God already said. You know how you know what's phony today? Not by what they do, not by the big churches they have. Listen to what they say. When they change based on what God said, you're done with it. You're done with it. Why, she should have sent him packing, man. The fault she had to hear was what was in his heart that came out of his mouth and realized it didn't line up with what God's heart was and what God said. End of story. She didn't do it. God's people don't do it today either. Got to listen to what somebody says. Got to listen to what somebody says. 99% of God's people are not, or anybody is not smart enough to guard what they say when they say it. And if you listen and you're paying attention, you develop the ability to listen. Listen to what they say. That will always reveal <coughs> when a person, where a person is at and who they really are. You know, most preachers, honestly, they don't listen to anybody. And most preachers are famous for keep on speaking when there's nothing left to be said. If you'll just listen to what somebody says, you can get a read on where their heart is at through the art of listening. Because the heart will always reveal it. You know, in the ministry, as a pastor, there's nine things 
that a really good pastor has to be able to do well. And if he doesn't understand these nine things, he got to sell cars someplace we can get out of the ministry. Because these nine things are a, is what a good pastor has to understand and do well with his people. If you're going to build a work that's going to be God's work and a work that's going to do what God wants it to do, you've got to have these nine things in it and you've got to know how to do it. You've got to understand how to make it work. Now, the first thing a, a pastor has to be able to do is he has to be able to relate to his people. He has to be one with them. You can't expect people to be part of your ministry if you want to allow them to be part of your life. It's just that simple. A pastor has to be approachable. Most churches, you can't get to the pastor. He wants your tithe. He wants you to come to church. He wants you to get involved in ministry. But if you've got a personal problem in your life, you'll never get in to see him. He'll have somebody else, some second stringer down there that you'll have to go see. He's too busy to deal with you. You get a pastor like that, that you, uh, and you don't have his cell phone number in your cell phone, you got the wrong guy. In the Third Reich, everybody thinks that Adolf Hitler was the most powerful man in the Third Reich. He really wasn't. He's pretty powerful. But miss, people miss this. He had a secretary, in the sense of a personal secretary, by the man named Martin Bormann. Martin Bormann had Hitler's confidence in Hitler's ear. He was the one who chose who got to see Adolf Hitler. If he didn't like you, you never got an appointment. If he did like you, you could get in to see him. If he had something he wanted you to do for him, that was the price to get to see him. And I saw over the years so many churches where pastors will delegate their dealing with appointments and dealing with what they do to somebody else out there who, who controls who gets access to him. I call it the Martin Borman syndrome. Martin Borman was the most powerful person in the Third Reich. And whoever does that in a church with a pastor will become the most powerful person in that church because they decide whether you get to see him or not. You don't get to decide. He don't get to decide. That person gets to decide. You ought to have access to a pastor anytime, 24-7. You ought to be able to come to the point where you can get in touch with them, that if you've got a problem, I mean, uh, you, don't get, you don't get put off. I mean, somebody else may work with you in discipleship, but you have to be able to get access to the pastor every time you can. Amen. He has to relate to his people. Now, I don't fight this. A lot of you like to call me Pastor Bob. That's fine. A lot of you want your kids to call me Pastor Bob. I get it. I'm Bob. I am a pastor, but I'm Bob. There ain't nothing special about me. I am a pastor. I understand you want to teach your kids respect. That's fine. I understand that some people, they think that's a thing of respect to Pastor Bob. I get it. Uh, titles I've never been big with. You know, uh, I am, you know, have you been ordained? Yes, I am. I am a reverend. What's the point? You know, I don't put it on my checks. I don't put it out there. I don't go into a restaurant and say, I, I like two for Reverend Alexander. I, I, I don't do that. I don't, I don't go into the bank. I don't go anywhere. Uh, I just, I'm just Bob. I'm just Bob. B-O-B. Spell it either way. It comes out the same way. That's who I am. Uh, it, it, it's, I don't understand it. You know what? We're all in this together. We're all in this together. It isn't me over here and you over here. We're all in this together. I'm no better than you. I'm no different than you. I may have been through a few more things than you, but you know what? We all struggle with things. 
and I'm no better than you, no different than you, and we're just in this together. And we hang on to each other sometimes. And that's what we got to do. And you've got to be able to get to the point where a pastor has to relate to his people. He has to be one with them. They have to understand that he, is, he belongs to them and they belong to him. They're one together. I'll tell you the second thing. Not only does he have to be able to relate to people, he has to be able to regenerate people. The job of this church, first and foremost, is to preach truth. The second aspect of this church is to win people to Christ, bring them into the kingdom. A pastor has to know, most pastors, they have no clue how to build a church. They have no clue how to reach people. You look around our church, you'll see that the average person here is probably 40 years or younger. A lot of young couples in our church. But tell you something, that didn't happen by accident. You as a pastor have to know where the lifeblood of your church is going to be, and you have to target that age group, and you have to go after them, and then you have to come to the point where you understand how you do that. You just don't get up and preach, and like uh, you don't have a shotgun where you just shoot into, into a crowd and hope you hit somebody. No, 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 no. You've got to have a rifle with a telescopic sight that I can drop you at 500 yards. That's what you've got to do. You've got to have a target group. You have to know what you're going to go after. Most churches, don't mean this wrong, and I love all the older folks here, but you're going to be truth in the matter. Most of you were young at one time when you were with me. I know you're old, John, and your wife's not very old. She's like 20 years younger than you. Gene's, most people don't know, Gene was a whale of a basketball player 40 years ago. Weren't you, Gene? Don't be, don't be shy. He was a great basketball. He could dribble that ball. He was a good shot. He was great. He's old now. I'm old now. He wasn't always old. Been with me that long, we're hanging out with me, just has a tendency to do that to you. I don't know what to tell you. I appreciate all the older folks who have a real stability in that. But you know what? On the softball field, on the volleyball court, where you got young couples out there that, that have bad marriages or struggles in their lives or don't have this or don't have that, you know who's going to really get out there and mix it up with them? You younger ones. I still play, but I got I to gotta see my drug dealer all day long before we play. Man, I'm so high by the time I get on that field, I don't feel anything. Somebody said, well, did you win your game tonight? Man, I don't know. I'm just here. Where are, where's the car? I'm just looking for the place. Man, I've got three Valium in me. I got a 4,500 milligrams of ibuprofen. I've got hydrochloric and I got, I got uh, Oxycontin and I'm just high as a kite, man. You know what? How was the ball game? Well, from my altitude, it was really good. I saw everything. You got to understand how you reach people. You got to understand where the lifeblood of a church is. You got to understand how you take young couples, take them, get other young couples, work with them, bring them along, help them. When I'm talking to young couples, I'm talking 50 down, man, maybe 55, 60 down, depending on how old you feel you are. Thank you. I don't even want to look up and see who said that. Third thing he has to do, pastor has to be able to educate people. Greatest example of that was last week. I want you to be informed. I don't want you to be sheep. 
just dumb sheep. I want you to be sheep with an IQ. I want you to understand what's going on around you in the world. I want you to understand what's happening. I'll take time on Thursday night, take time on Sunday morning, where I gave you a great piece of information last week that tied in to Amy's question uh, a couple of weeks ago on Thursday night and then bounced into the next Thursday, and then we just happened to slam into last Sunday morning. You got an incredible group of information that helps you understand. I want you to be educated. I want you to know what's on around you. God's people, for the most part, and I, I say this to their, our shame as Christians, God's people, for the most part, are the most stupidest people on the planet when it comes to what's going on around them. They just, like the blind, blind leading the blind. They have no idea. They get caught up in the wrong issues. They get caught up in the wrong fields. They don't see it for what it really is. I don't want you that way. I want you, we get accused all the time, you know, being a cult and everybody says, Bob, 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 Bob just tells you what to think. I don't ever tell anybody what to think. You know what I want to do? I just want you to think. I just want you to think for yourself. I give you the right book and give you the truth and you get thinking for yourself. I won't have to tell you what to think. You'll figure it out for yourself. That's how it works. That's how it's supposed to work. But I want you to be educated. I want you to understand about how the devil changed garments down through history. I want you to be able to relate to that. I want to see how, see how the eight manifestations of Christ. I want you to see where the two lines of the Bibles come from, the two churches, the two Bibles, the two Christs in the Bible. I want you to understand all that. And then the fourth thing, pastor has to be able to motivate people. If the pastor doesn't, you know, no church, a church will always be, never go any higher than the spiritual mindset of the guy in charge. I have, have guys come in and seen my ministries all my life and they'll say, how do you get your people excited about the Word of God? Like it's some special formula. You know how I get you excited about the Word of God? I get excited about the Word of God. Right. Nothing, everything rises and falls on leadership. You're not going to get excited about it if I'm not. If that book isn't number one in my world, it's certainly going to be number one in yours. And I can't make it number one in yours when it isn't number one in mine. You can't do that. It just doesn't work that way. You know, leaders, leaders motivate by example. You lead from the front. You don't lead from the rear. You never will be excited about the Word of God if I'm not. It's just that simple. General Douglas MacArthur was a great general, and he had a lot of problems. He was. He was a prima donna, and he had a lot of things where he thought he was, and he was, he was a great general. Well, one of the things that he did that always amazed his men, he would go right down in the battlefront. He would right down where it was all, where the battle was going on. And one time on, on Guadalcanal, he, he was driving up there, uh, and he was driving up there in a jeep uh, with his driver, and a guy in the back was his bodyguard, and uh, he's right on the front lines. And uh, he's up there, and he's, uh, the captain comes running over, and he said, General, you don't need to be up here. He says, we just killed some Jap snipers not 20 minutes ago. He looks at him, and he says, good, son, that's what you do with them. And he drove on. That captain looked at the other guys around him and said, that's the first time in my 20-some years in the, in the military I ever saw a four-star general take point. He led from the front. You may not have liked everything he did. You may not have liked who he was and the decision that he made, but you had to admire that when it hit the fan, he was where it was at. You got to lead. 
You don't motivate without leading. You motivate. You motivate. You always lead from the front. You motivate. You're the, you, you motivate by your excitement in a book that others see and want because uh, it, you make it come alive to them. Amen. The Bible's not a boring book, folks. How many times have somebody said, well, I can't understand the Bible. It's such a boring book. The Bible's not a boring book. The problem is we just got a lot of guys preaching it that's boring. It's not boring. That book is as fresh as next month's newspaper. Fifth thing he has to be able to do. A pastor has to know how to accelerate people. Get you to grow faster than you normally would. You're looking at the, at the kids that these, our older guys and gals are working with. You know what it's doing? It's accelerating their spiritual growth. I was at the singles ministry yesterday, and I'm always just flabbergasted by that. Nick taught yesterday. Nick taught. I mean, everybody who's done it is just, uh, just incredible. And I asked Nick afterwards, Nick, well, how long have you been in the church? A little over a year, you said? A year and six months, something like that? I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. It was one of the most detailed, laid out things on one of the toughest places in the Bible on the cities of refuge. He took the cities of refuge back there out of Numbers and Exodus, and he laid that thing out as Christ in the refuge for us. It was incredible, and he's only been here. Lauren, where are you at? Where's Lauren at? What did you say afterwards to me, Lauren? Yell it out real loud. Well, we knew that. He said, he says he's figured it out more than anybody that he's come out of Bible college. And he's true. You know why? Because he's had his growth accelerated. You see, there's two ways to learn the Bible, folks. There's two ways to learn the Bible, the hard way and the easy way. Bible colleges, most churches, the world wants to take the hard route. Me, I want to take the easy route. That's nothing spiritual about me. I've taken the easy route everything in my life. Not just this happened to work out good for me with the Bible. But you know, there's two ways you can go to St. Louis. You can go right out here, get on I-70 and head down to 70 East and three and a half hours, you'll be in St. Louis. Or you can go to the same exit, same I-70 and go west. You can go out through Denver, out through LA, get on a boat, go to China, cross the Himalayas, get on another boat, go over to Europe, go through France, go through Spain, go through England, go all those places, get on another boat, and then get over there and cross the Atlantic, get in there at the East, at the east Coast and drive, pick up a thing and come right back to St. Louis that way. There's two ways you can go. One is pretty impractical. The other one is the fastest route. There's two ways you can learn the Bible. One of them is going to take you through China. The other one is going to get you there as quickly as you can. That's how it works. The job of a pastor is to get you where God wants you to be as fast as you can. And there's a process to do that. There's a process to, to, to do that. There's a process, and I realize there's no shortcut to the Bible. I get that. But if you just take the Word of God and you begin to put that Bible in your life the right way, and you put the right people with the right circumstances and get you the right stuff that you need, why? You know what? I told you before. When Jesus came to this earth, he took 10 men. And in three years' time, he was ready to go back to heaven. And those 10, 12 men that he picked, after spending three years with him, we're ready to take on the world and replace it all when he left. Well, if he can do that with them, you got the word of God, you got the mind of Christ. You give me you in three years, 
I already got him and he's not even been here a year and a half. You give me you in three years doing it the way the book says, you'll be something else. You'll be something else. Got to know how to do that. He has to be able to duplicate people. Number six, building people. You know, I've said it before. This church is not for everybody. I've never claimed it to be. I'm here for a reason. I, I, I want to build some things. I want to build people. And I know what to look for in building people. Now, I'm not much of a carpenter. We've got good carpenters that are in here. And you know that if you've got to build something, you go down to Home Depot and uh, you, go buy, uh, you, go buy, uh, you go buy some lumber. And you know that you're always doing it. You're looking at making sure the two-by-fours are straight and you don't want to want them with a lot of holes in them and you want to, you want to get the very best building materials you can build to build whatever your project is going to be. Okay, you guys are my project and when I build somebody, I look for the very best building materials I can find. God has a way of bringing some great building material into this church. My job is to recognize it. My job is to take it. And my job is to shave it down, fashion it, cut it, put it together, nail it together, and form something that's going to last for God. That's what you got to do. It's not hard. You got to be able to duplicate what you have in somebody else. I, I think the greatest anathema to any church is when a pastor decides he's going to go off the scene or he's going to leave. That they, and he's been there for 20, 30 years, that they have to look outside the church to find somebody to take the church. What have you been doing for the last 25 years? You have absolutely trained nobody. Nobody. Well, if I die tomorrow, there's 40 guys that could take this place and probably 30 women if you're allowed to, but you're not allowed to. But you could. You could. I'm telling you. What, do, what good do you do in ministry if when it's all said and done, you haven't left a duplication of yourself? And I get it. 200 Bob Alexanders is a scary thought. <laughs> I understand. The seventh thing, he has to be able to elevate people. Every one of you is invaluable to me, whether you know it or not. Some of you, unfortunately, you'll never get to that point in your life where you ever realize it because you can't get past yourself or whatever your issues are. But I recognize one great thing about our church and about you. It's no accident that you're here today. Amen. God brought you here for a purpose. God brought you here for a reason. If you don't fulfill that, that's on you. But he brought you here for a purpose because he has something that you have to offer to this church. He has something, you have something that I need and what a scheme of things of what I'm doing. Everybody is unique. Everybody is different. But you have to learn to elevate people, making people feel special and important to you and your ministry because you truly are. And they're special because God gave them to you. And I truly believe this. God will, you, some people say, well, why doesn't churches grow? God will never give you any more than you're willing to take care of. That's a fundamental principle of ministry. He will never give you any more that you're willing to take care of. And I'm telling you, uh, when I say give you people, I mean quality people, not substandard people. Well, the eighth thing, he has to learn how to placate people. What does that mean? Placate means to put up with stupid stuff that people do. 
You know, when you, people come in and they get young and they're growing in the Word of God, we, we, I know I did. I did some stupid things. I, I want to look back at why how, I met Mel must have just hung up the phone and, and laughed, his, laughed and fell out of the chair at some of the stupid stuff I said and did. I mean, I could give you a whole list of stuff that I said and did that I thought was great ideas that wasn't very good ideas, but that's where I was. And people come up with that. And you got to find a way. I've had people come up with this, honestly, the stupidest, screwiest idea that will never work in a hundred million years in any scenario, even remotely connected with a ministry. You know what you got to do as a pastor? You got to find a way to make them feel that that's the best idea you heard today. <laughs> Put your arm around them and say, man, something to that. <laughs> you come up with that all by yourself. Man, I, I just can't wait till you get a little more Bible under your belt because you have a great concept of coming up with good thoughts. <laughs> Not very workable right now. Don't say that to him. You, you, that, it, man, you know what? I want you to come to me every time you get an idea. You know what? Where we're at right now, we probably can't use everything you come up with because I couldn't have the church grow that fast. But I want you to know, you come and tell me every time you get something. Because you know what? I really love you, and you're important to me. And I mean every word I said. I wasn't saying it just because what he said. I meant every, because you know what? I see down past that stupid thing. I see my stupid thing. I called Mel, I got so excited one time at work, thinking about, it was Christmas time, and I, I caught Mel on the phone from a payphone, and I said, Mel, I got the greatest idea to win people to Christ. And he said, what is that? And I said, uh, I'm going to, let's get a bunch of people. I'll dress up in a Santa Claus suit, and we'll give out tracts. <laughs> it got real quiet on the other end of the phone. And I'm as serious as can be. And he said, well, you know, that is a really good idea. I just don't think where we're at right now that that would probably work. But he says, you always call me when you get something like that because you really think deep and you think well. And I need to hear these things. Something like that. I look back on it and he was saying to himself, number eight, placate. <clears throat> he's a good kid. But boy, I'll tell you what, he's got to whack that idea on that one. I called a judge one time. I got so excited about working with incorrigible kids. I was working at a detention home at that point. I don't know how I ever got in. I called the court and, and, and got a hold of the judge that was in charge of all the juvenile delinquents. Offered my services to him. I said, I don't know how I ever got him on the line. How do you get a judge? Just call it in. I called his office and a lady answered the phone. I said, I'd like to talk to Judge so-and-so. She said, well, just a moment. Now I'm really thinking God is in this. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> he gets on the phone. He says, this is Judge so-and-so. And I said, sir, my name is Bob Alexander, and I'm a Christian. And I work down at the Stark County Detention Center, and I'm the chaplain down there. And I want you to know that I'm doing a good job to help you with these kids. And I want you to know that I've got some several ideas of a program that will really, 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 really work. And, uh, and I just went on and on and on. It had to be the stupidest stuff he ever heard in his life. But you know what he said? He said, you know what? 
If we had more people like you that were is interested in what this is, we'd have less juvenile delinquents. And I want you to know, I'm going to consider what you say. And I appreciate you calling today. And you have been a bright spot in my day that knowing there's somebody out there that is concerned about these kids as much as I am. Now, I don't know if he meant that or not. I hope he did. <laughs> I don't want to cry. <laughs> I hope he did. But I'll tell you what. You know why you never put a damper on things like that? You were there. You were there. You were there. Scott was there. Schmitz were there. I came to Kansas City, what, 10, 15 years later. We got into every detention home in Kansas City. We got an athletic program going for every detention home in Kansas City. And when it came down to the championship between the things, you know what they did? They let us have Kemper Arena before the Kings played. And the detention home kids played their championship game in front of a whole crowd. All because of one little guy's screwy idea that some judge can't tell you what he said after he hung up the phone, but while he was on the phone, he said, you know what? Thank you for that. Motivated me. Lifted me up. Gave me everything I needed to keep on going. He placated me. You know, we all have our weaknesses. And we all tend to do dumb things. Instead of just criticizing each other for the dumb things we do, we need to put our arms around each other and help each other up. Either strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. I'll be strong for you if you be strong for me. How's that work for you, huh? And that's exactly the way it has to work. Well, the ninth thing, and this gets back to my point. A good pastor has to be able to listen to his people. He has to listen to what they say. They have to be as important to him based on these first eight things that he knows that if they got something to say, no matter how mundane it may be or how important it may be, he needs to listen. When they're struggling with something, he listens. When they're talking about something that God did in their life, he listens. The value of learning to listen. It's so easy. It's so easy to be able to do those things. And then the last part of verse 27, a man of understanding is of excellent spirit. In the ministry to people, your spirit has to always be of an excellent nature. You have to learn to be 100% positive, even though on the inside you're not. You know, you find some people that they have something go wrong in their life and it shows in everything that they do. You know, even when you're, even when you're not 100%, you can't show it. Because an excellent spirit will become infectious to others. It's that iron sharpeneth iron concept. It will encourage others. And in a ministry, there's no room in a pastor's life for defeatism, being defeated. You have to live above the circumstances. Mel used to say, if your Christianity is not contagious, then it's contaminated. And that's so true. Because it's all based on a spirit, an excellent spirit. In ministry, you maintain an excellent spirit uh, in face of the good times and the bad times. Because you have wisdom and understanding. You realize that you're a leader and you have to lead. And you have to lead where you have the ability, somebody that, that can fall apart, you don't have the ability to. 
You have to stand strong. And sometimes there'll be some things that'll knock you on your knees. You've got to get back up and you can't show it and you've got to keep moving on. You maintain an excellent spirit because you don't take the negative personal. You realize you're working for the Lord. Listen, I want you all to do right. I really do. I want you all to learn the Bible and get every problem solved in your life. I really do. I, I, try, I, I want that for everybody here. I want God's blessings in your life. I truly want that for all of you. But my responsibility is to love you unconditionally, give you the truth, and do all I can to help you. But at the end of the day, if you don't want that and you want to continue in the way you're going, hey, man, it's not going to affect my spirit one way or the other. I'm going to stay where God wants me to be, even if you don't. That's the way it works. He says, verse 28, even a fool, when he hath his, his, uh, uh, holds his peace, is counted wise, and he that shutteth his lips is esteemed as a man of understanding. In other words, going back to what we said, we are known by what we say. We reveal who we really are by what we say. Ecclesiastes 5.3 says, a fool's voice is known by a multitude of words. Proverbs 10.19 says, in a multitude of words, there, uh, there wanteth not sin, uh, but he that feedeth his lips is wise. For a Christian, he should have all the wisdom and understanding that God has, the mind of Christ. This separates him from the world system. And then he should come to the point where he learns how to use what he says sparingly because he's listening. You know, First John is a great little book, and it really deals with my relationship with Christ. And you'll find in that little book with just five chapters, 36 times he says that we're to know something. The Bible-believing child of God, through his relationship with Christ and his word, should know some things. When he has a workable knowledge about God and the Word of God, he knows how to use understanding and wisdom, then he'll know some things. You know what? Most of God's people, and I know many of you, if not most of you, are in a process of learning and growing, and you're building it. So I'm not talking to you. But come on. The average Christian out there who's saved claims to know God. Do you really know Him? Or do you just think you do? I mean, I mean, the Bible says that there, there are seven things that we're to add to our faith. Do you know what they are? Are you in the process of adding them? How do you add them when you don't even know what they are? The Bible says there are seven things that you and I as a child of God are not to be ignorant of. And yet in my life, in my experience, those are the seven things that most God's people are totally ignorant of. We talk about in discipleship too, the seven things that changed the day you got saved. Do you know what it is that impacted you that why you're not the same person you used to be? There's seven periods in church history that forms the basis for where you're at and what's going on in your life today. Can you even lay it out? In Hebrews, there's seven aspects of the Word of God that impact you in everything that you do. Seven stages of spiritual growth. What stage are you in? Ooh, I didn't even know there was any stages. Say, so I really love God. I really have a relationship with God. Good. What are the seven things that God hates? And what are the seven things that please God? See, how do you have a real... This is 21st century Laodicean Christianity. We have a head knowledge of God, but no heart knowledge of God. We say we love Him, but we don't know what He loves. We say we want to live for God and do what's right. We don't even know the things that He hates. If I'd have the average Christian, do you want to please God? Oh, yes, I do. They couldn't even tell you the seven things that pleases God. And then we pretend we have a relationship with him. Hey, Christian is to know some things. And when he gets the word of God and the wisdom in his life and he starts to build it around the word of God, he'll know what he believes. 
He'll know why he believes it. He'll know who caused him to believe it. And he'll know the relationship of what he believed to all the other beliefs and truths found in the world. Remember, talking comes by natural nature. Silence comes by understanding and wisdom. Every Christian in one form or another has a quiet time where you just get alone with God. And to you, if you have that, that's your special time where God speaks to you. That's how you learn. And that's how you minister. You minister by listening much more than you minister by talking. When you listen more and talk less, when you do say something, you go straight to the heart of the matter based on the fact that you have wisdom and understanding and you've listened. The art of listening. Bible says over and over again, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. My dear friend Greg McClintock, who I met him years and years and years ago, when I held a first revival up in Monmouth. He was a prosecuting attorney then, and he was a good one. He went on to become a judge, served a full life as a judge, and then he retired, and now he's pastoring that little church up there. I won Greg to Christ. I remember the first time I ever met him. We had a team go up there to pass out tracts for Little Baptist Church, and I, uh, he stopped by and uh, I, I went over to the, I cut out from the team and went over and hung out with him and watched television and talked. And that was the beginning of a really good relationship. And I won him to Christ after that period of time, after a while. I had him preach one time years and years and years ago. He said something I never forgot. And it's so true based on what we're saying today. I don't remember what he was preaching on. I don't remember the text. I don't remember any of it. I just remember the one thing he said. He said, every Christian had a witness. And sometimes you should use words. Every Christian ought to minister. You minister by your excellent spirit. You minister by understanding where people are at. Understanding what they're going through. You minister to them by listening to what they say. Making them as special as they really are. Realizing that you don't care where they've been, what they've done, what they've been into. You accept them on the basis that God sected you and me the day we took us in. Because I guarantee you, you say, well, that person, that gal don't look too hot, or that guy don't look too hot. I guarantee you, you and I didn't look very hot the first time God laid eyes on us. But you know what he did? He loved us unconditionally. You know what he did? He looked inside every one of us. And when we were still in our sin, we were still deep in the world, he saw those character qualities that he was looking for. And just like some carpenter, maybe that's why he was a carpenter, walking through Home Depot. He picked out the best material for building. And if you're here today, you're here today by accident. God sees something in you. The only question is, do you see anything in you? God wants to do something with you. The only question is, do you want to do something with you? God wants to take you and mold you and make you and build you from a substandard human being to a mighty man of valor where you can stand for God and do something for God before it comes back. I don't have any problems with God. My question is, where are you at with all of that? Work out your own salvation. He saved you for a reason. He saved you for a purpose. He's given you a church. He's given you people around you. He's given you the Bible. 
He's given you everything that you need that you can work out everything in your life to become everything God wants you to be. It's up to you.